The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Start spreading the news. Amelia Cormack has accomplished what most performers simply dream of, especially if they are located anywhere other than New York City. Amelia recently made her Broadway debut at the age of 42 in the Tony Award-winning musical Hadestown. Hailing from Australia, the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts graduate had already charted a career that had garnered credits in theatre, film, television and cabaret around the globe. Amelia was an original diva in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the musical, and performed the role in Australia and New Zealand for nearly two years, then went on to reprise the role on London's West End. Most recently in Australia, she performed the role of Tilly Devine in Razorhurst at the Hayes Theatre Company. Amelia has toured the US with Kinky Boots, Les Miserables and Come From Away and originated the role of Raven Johnson in Douglas Lyons and Ethan Parkchar's musical Beau. Most recently, she appeared in the world premiere of the online musical Your Musical is Cancelled, The Musical. Stages caught up with Amelia live from New York City to celebrate her passion for musical theatre, the importance of chasing your dreams, and to rejoice in the occasion of Amelia making her long-anticipated debut on Broadway. All aboard. The last time I saw you was uh, at, at Thunder Down Under or whatever that time. Oh, Magic Mike. <laughs> Magic Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's right. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That was such a blast from the past. I met into so many people that I hadn't seen in a very, very long time, including including an ex-boyfriend, which was a lovely surprise. It wasn't a bad thing, but it was like, oh, it was just crazy. Like I hadn't seen so many of those people since the Priscilla days because a lot of them were Priscilla crew. So it was like, oh, my God. (laughs) What I found most impressive about that show, uh, Magic Mike, uh, was the purpose-built Spiegel tent. Yeah. Wasn't amazing. 
It's gorgeous. Yeah. Absolutely gorgeous. Have you ever performed in a Spiegel tent? I haven't. I know a lot of people that have, obviously, as we both do, but I have never done it. it. I I would like to. I'd like to one day, but yeah. Yeah. They're all over the world. I mean, when they were first mentioned, I thought there was only one Spiegel tent and it just travelled the world. Yeah. But um, obviously. I think that was the original idea, but then they, they built a whole bunch more because it was so popular. Yeah. That's yeah. great. That's great. Yeah. Well, hello, Amelia Cormack. Uh, on the other side of the world and in another time zone. Hi. <laughs> uh, you're in New York City, of course. Um, does yeah. that time difference make it a challenge to um, to connect with family and friends back in Australia? Um, it, it Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Most of the time it's actually... Um, it's actually okay because as we get into our afternoon, you guys are just waking up. So it's actually, and especially being on a show schedule, it's nice to kind of go before I go into work to, um, uh, to you know, then I can call people just as they're waking up. So it's kind of, you know, I've been living away, you know, I had two years in London and then I've been here in New York for nine years. So it's kind of become par for the course. Although I do have a little formula depending on which, which time zone it is. Um, at the moment, I think we're 15 hours behind, so I just add three and reverse it. Yeah, that works. That works. Yeah. <laughs> and to the, to the listener, just so you know, it's 5 a.m. Uh, in Sydney while I'm talking to you. I mean, million, but... God, God bless you. <laughs> God bless you for being willing to, to get up at that hideous hour just to talk to me. Oh, no, you've got an eight-show week, so it's important to fit in with you. It's uh yeah, living that living that dream. Well, living it up, um, so to speak. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. Because, of course, uh, chatting to you for a whole range of things, but most particularly because you recently made your Broadway debut in um, the musical Town. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, and it was a Broadway debut that came along at, uh, can we say your age? Of course. Yeah. I am 42. That's uh, dreams do come true. Mm-hmm. So obviously it's been a, a, a lifelong held goal of yours to uh, mm -hmm. to perform on Broadway. Mm -hmm. um, did you ever think it was going to happen? That's a really interesting question. I I I felt like it was um, just a yeah. I felt like it was just a matter of time, and I had a lot of people buoying me up. But along my journey, it's very much been just. I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I definitely had lofty goals and ambitions for what I wanted, but it wasn't, it's, it's weird now that I think about it. It was kind of like, well, that's the end goal. It feels like it's the natural progression of things and it's just a question of time. But obviously I put a lot of hard work in and, and didn't give up on that, but it's, 
you know, I've been in New York for nine years and this is the first show that I've done in New York, let alone on Broadway at all, because I've, I've done a lot of touring and regional work here in the States. And it's definitely the end goal, but there's this weird disconnect sometimes between when something is a dream, it's a way, it's far away, it's over there. It, you can keep fantasizing about it. And then when it becomes real, it's like, uh, oh, it's, yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, but it's also terrifying mm. because when it's over there, it gets to be just over there. It's not real yet. And then when it becomes real, you have a whole lot of like, well, can I match up to this crazy expectation I've created of this thing that we all, you know, um, drive and work and strive for? And it is, it is incredible and wonderful. And, my God, Town is such a gift of a show and I am so deeply humbled and grateful to be in such a beautiful show that's a hit. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's definitely a mixed bag of emotions, that's for sure. You're you're a good uh, fifteen years younger than me, um, and and uh, when I was growing up, yeah, it just seemed such an alien achievement to sort of perform on Broadway. But I suppose someone of your age, you're growing up and you're seeing people like uh, Tony Collette appear on Broadway and Hugh Jackman and and, and winning Tony awards and um, and yeah. Tim Wright and um, Carmel Dean starting to pave yep. their way in New York City. So that must buoy you and give you hope that, yes, it is within reach. Oh, it's extraordinary. I feel so lucky to have come at a time and the, the Australia performing community here in New York is a truly extraordinary thing. We are family. We... And especially those of us that stayed through the pandemic, we watching the way that everyone showed up for each other is truly. And you know, I had wonderful people like Kay Tuckerman, um, who just enveloped me, took me under her wing, and and I, I consider my sister. She's she's been such an extraordinary support to me. Um, and you know, Lexi Fishman from my Whopper days is here, and and a, a bunch of other people, and. It, it's, it is watching us make our mark. I will say, one, I think one of my most precious memories, um, Eddie Perfect asked me uh, to, and David Harris um, to come to a workshop reading of Beetlejuice. And the day that they did this reading, um, Kerry Butler had laryngitis, so she couldn't sing. And I'm watching Eddie that I, I know from the Whopper circle because he was he graduated the year before I got there. And I'm watching someone that did the same thing that I did, sing for this Broadway star that I grew up absolutely idolising and adoring. And it, I, I messaged him afterwards and I just said, you've just, and it was at a particularly low point um, where I'd been through a bunch of auditions and just wasn't booking for months after, uh, on end. And I just was like, you just gave me so much inspiration and to watch someone that comes from where we come from be in this room with these luminaries and singing. It, yeah, it, it, I will treasure that memory forever and I think it's something that really buoyed me and, and, and kept me going at a time that was really hard. Yeah, th thank you for sharing a few more names there. You know, beautiful Kay and and Eddie and um, Alexis and David and uh, uh, yes, as soon as you open that uh, that lid, there are so many Australians making their way in New York and on Broadway. And we can't forget, you know, Tony Sheldon's glorious story through uh, through Priscilla. Of course, and also Tim Minchin. I mean, with Matilda, like it yeah. just 
I, I feel like I'm truly benefiting and, and being here in this kind of golden age where Australians are really making their mark here. Um, and it makes me really, really proud, really proud. And, and I think it also acknowledges the, the fact that I, I am so grateful for the theatre education I had in Australia. Um, I think we are, we are taught to work hard and never take anything for granted because it is so competitive and there are so few jobs. And I was so fortunate to have Tony as a, a, a dear friend and mentor from the end of my second year of WAPA. He directed us in a production of Shark Bell is Alive and Well and Living in Paris. And he and I just instantly bonded. And then, of course, we did Priscilla together in Australia. Um, and, you know, I got to watch him here on Broadway in the show. Um, and he's just been such a constant source of inspiration for me and just a model of how to be a professional in this industry. Um, just grace and kindness and humility. And every single night, I always talk about we would get on the bus during MacArthur Park in Priscilla and what watching him or listening to him sing the beginning of that song at that moment in that show, just it, it was always one of the most beautiful moments I've seen on the stage. So I, I feel very grateful to have had those people around me. And, you know, Genevieve Lemon and Jackie Weaver, my God. I mean, looking at Jackie's trajectory, Jackie's been such an inspiration to me as well. I mean, the she she broke Hollywood in, you know, at a much later stage in her life than most people do. And, you know, like her and Carolina Connor is another one as well that, you know, her Broadway story, I'm surrounded by inspirations of this thing doesn't happen overnight. People work for decades to make this happen. Um, and it's interesting when I speak to younger people, I really feel for, for young people coming up as teenagers and in their 20s with social media and TikTok and all these things, I think I feel like they're shown this instant model of fame that it has to happen instantly. And one of the things whenever I go to schools or to give masterclasses or anything like that is I always say to them, I said, there are some of us like me who are, we're never going to be the ingenue or we're never going to be the romantic lead. So our stuff's coming later in our life. And if you want this, you have to be prepared for the fact that it is going to take time. Some people, it's instant, but then it doesn't last. When it's instant, it doesn't last. So, um, yeah, I, I, I look at those, those people and those careers and that's what I aspire to, really. Yeah, it's, a, it's an occupation that requires a lot of perseverance, a lot of resilience um, mm -hmm. and a lot of, a lot of luck. Yeah. Yes. I yeah. Mean, you, can't, you, you can't put your finger on luck. Um, it's just... No. You a fatalist that that it's in our orbit that um, things will happen or not? It's interesting. I I it's funny that you mentioned that. So I I remember when. Um, so for people that may not be aware, uh, I moved to London in 2011, and I was there for two weeks. And I got a phone call from the producers of Priscilla asking if I wanted to rejoin the company for the last three months of the run on the West End. Now I'd gone to London kind of waiting for my green card to come through. I wasn't going to planning on being there very long. I didn't even know if I was good enough to work internationally. It was purely a, well, I don't really want to be in Sydney anymore, so I'm just going to go there and just work in a bar and wait for my green card. And I remember coming home at one point after that had happened and I was saying to a friend of mine, I said, oh, I just feel so lucky that that call came. And she said, luck had nothing to do with it. She said, you put yourself 
in the place for that to happen. And I think I, I really like that because while there is a certain measure of luck, there's also I took the risk and I, I, I often feel like sometimes, and I'm not a religious person, but I'm a sort of spiritualist, so sometimes you have to show the universe that you're willing to take a risk. And I have been so very fortunate and privileged in my life that that risk has paid off um, a number of times, but it's taken a lot of having faith that, and especially, you know, like I was saying in that year, and I think it was 2018, I had eight months of back-to-back auditions where I got down to the last round or the second last round. And it was really disheartening and really, really hard. And it was like, oh, and in fact, Here's, a, here's an interesting story. The last audition at the end of that eight months was for Hades Town on Broadway, for the original Broadway company. And it kind of broke me a little bit when I didn't book it because I'd cancelled a gig, a Christmas gig that I usually get, I pulled out of and, you know, taken that risk. And I was, I, it was the first time that I ever went, oh, am I sure that I want to do this? Um, and it's so, I mean, the beautiful irony and circle of life that I am now in that show um it's yeah and there's a whole other story about being in the show with Lilius which we might get into at a later point but um it yeah it's so there is some measure of luck there's also there's also a lot of privilege of me having the financial support and place that I am able to take those risks and do that, which obviously I know there are so many that are not able. And part of my journey on Broadway, I feel like I am carrying the hopes and dreams of so many people on my shoulders every moment that I step out on that stage for the people that gave up, for the people that did not have the opportunities that I did. And I take that responsibility very, very sacredly and seriously. Yeah. Um, Lilius White is certainly a dot point that I wanted to talk to you um, about in this conversation. Uh, You're certainly surrounded by the best in the Broadway cast of Hades Town. It's led by Mm -hmm. Joelle Blackman as Persephone, uh, Grammy Award winner Reeve Carney as Orpheus, Tony Award nominee Patrick Page as Hades, two-time Tony Award nominee Eva Noblezada as Eurydice, uh, and, of course, Tony Award winner Lilius White. Uh, What is your role in the show? So I play... (laughs) I play one of three fates. I often joke with people that I'm basically doing what I did in Priscilla, but Mean Girls. <laughs> <laughs> because once again, I am I am a part of a trio, and um, it's yeah, it's amazing. So the fates are we watch, we know what's going to happen, and the show very closely models itself on the on the Greek myth. Um, for those that don't know the show, um, it is, I say it's the Orpheus and Eurydice story, but steampunk. So we are the fates that we we watch what happens and we we have a say, we have a comment on on the action, um, and we taunt and tease uh, the uh, unlucky souls that are, and we even, even the gods as well, we even play with the gods and their emotions and guide them various places. So it's a very, very, very fun part to play. Yeah, I have a lot of, I'm very mischievous. My fate is very gleeful and mischievous in what she's, what she's doing, so.
Um, so working alongside Lilius White, you, you've done that before, haven't you? I have. In 2010 in fame, yeah. In Australia? In Australia, yep. Yep, she replaced Darlene Love as uh, the the headmistress. I should remember the part. I can't remember the name of that, that role. But, yes, she, she replaced Lynch. and we did the... That's it. No, Miss Lynch is Greece. (laughs) Oh, there we go. (laughs) I'm just trying to think of of headmistresses. Yeah. Yeah. I should, I can't remember her name, but she has that glorious song, These Are My Children. Mm. Um, And uh, it was Lilius and Josie Lane and I joined for the Sydney season in 2010. So it was an an old home week, I guess, uh, stepping into the, the Broadway cast. Because w- w- did she join around the same time? Because I, I believe she was replacing Andre de Shields, who won the Tony Award. Well, she actually, uh, T. Oliver, who um, had been in the show already, had replaced Andre and then uh, for a period of time, and then Lilius replaced T. Right. Um, and um, yeah, she, she her first performance was the 13th of September, and mine was the 23rd of September. So. Yeah. So it must be great to um, be under the wing of of someone like her that you've already got a relationship with um, and who yeah. was such a phenomenal uh, Broadway, has had such a phenomenal Broadway career. Yeah, she's such a light. We actually became very, very close in 2010 in fame. I had a, I had a very tough time on that show and... Um, not for I, I had some some vocal issues that then made me question my whole sense of self and she was she and I just became really close and because we joined at the same time and um, I would go and sit in her dressing room and we'd talk about various things and go out for lunches and just how I just connected and so and we'd stayed in touch with Elizabeth when I came to visit her in New York um, and I'd seen her a couple of times. We hadn't seen each other in a really long time. And then when I walked in the building on my first day of rehearsal and she was there and I dropped my mask and I looked at her and she just wrapped her arms around me and we both started crying. Um, and I may get a little bit emotional as I tell this story because, the again, as I was saying before, with the full circle moments to to come full circle in this way from one of the darkest times of my life to then the pinnacle so far with this woman that was such a shining light for me. And she she just, she was like, I'm so happy. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so proud of you. And every, every night we're on stage on that show together, she comes at the in our bowels, she comes and grabs my hand and squeezes it. And it um, it's, it's, it's amazing, uh, you know, Again, to come back to your fatalism thing, there's some would argue that that, that was a meant to be moment, but the, the healing that has come out of that for me to come full circle in that way with someone who's such a legend and also watching her to perform this role, which she just is so wonderful in this role. And if anyone is ha- happens to find themselves in New York, you, you must see her in this role. It's, it's truly extraordinary. Girl, come on in from the cold on the railroad line.
Well, Amelia, you've experienced a huge number of opening nights, but <laughs> Broadway must be pretty special. Tell us about your your opening night on Broadway. What was that? What was that like? It was, it was, it was a blur. It was amazing. Um, I so basically, I come off a year on the road with Come From Away, and I went straight from that into. Um, into Town, and I had a very brief window for rehearsal. I think it was two and a half weeks. Um, I, I literally, my last day on Come From Away was the 4th of September and my first day on Town was the 6th. So it was very, very quick. Um, and I, the day itself, we had my put-in, um, which is like my dress rehearsal with the whole cast on the Friday afternoon. And then I went into the show that night and I am very fortunate to have a moment captured on someone took a photo, our incredible dance captain, Tara Jackson, stood next to me after we'd, I think we'd done some spacing stuff and she she whispered in my ear. If you go on my Instagram, you can see the photo. And she said, I want you to just take a moment and breathe and look at where you are. Sorry, I might get a little emotional. Um, and the fact that she took that time to say to me, stop and look, look at what you did. Look at where you got yourself and look at where you are. Whatever happens tonight, you did this. And this cast were so incredibly supportive and welcoming and wonderful. So then to have that and then to have my dad who flown all the way from Australia in the audience. Kay was in the audience. My brother and his wife were in my aunt. Like I had so many family members and people there. Um, it's very, very difficult to put into words having your dad see you finally do the thing that you left home to do. It's, um, yeah, it's, it still chokes me up a little bit. I still, I still feel like there's moments where I, I'm not really sure what I'm doing there. <laughs> like, do you know, like, that it, is it, is it really real? This is my job. This is, I go to Broadway and then I come home. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a, it's still a surreal feeling to this day. So, um, and I've I think I've I've just finished my fourth full week, so it's still very new. But yeah, I I will eternally be grateful to the to the secret photographer and and to Tara as well for for doing that. And um, I yeah, there was a lot of tears. There was a lot of tears that day. That's for sure. But but again, coming back to what I was saying before, you know, again, I felt. I felt my grandparents with me. I felt, I felt so many, so many people who didn't think they could or, or never tried because they didn't, you know, that's, that's, that's what I, I, I felt on that day as well. You know, the, the people that have paved the way past and present to get me to this point, um, that was very, it was very, very palpable to me. There's also, I guess, the enormity of those stage giants, Broadway giants who have graced the stage of the Walter Kerr Theatre um, mm -hmm. for decades before you. I mean, Bruce Springsteen was on our stage. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen did his, like, did his one-man show, which I watched on Netflix and was, uh, like, completely overawed and, and amazed by and yeah, so many, so many wonderful people. In fact, Tony Sheldon did Amelie in that theatre as well. 
And I wow. saw Tony Sheldon and Amelie. So we were comparing notes on dressing rooms. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting point too, you know, because those Broadway theatres are, are very intimate out front. Uh, mm-hmm. What's it like backstage? Do you do you have the, the dressing room sizes that you have in Australia? Or, Ooh, it you know? is tiny, tiny, <laughs> tiny. People would be very, very surprised to see how very little space there is. But, you know, a lot of these theatres are really old and, as we say, space is at a premium in New York. And, I mean, that New York theatres don't even have theatre foyers where you go and have a drink. That's why I always say to people, if you're coming to a show in New York, you do not need to line up to get in. You can get there literally five minutes before the start time and then you will walk straight in and straight to your seat. So don't (laughs) go and get a drink somewhere nearby and then come to the theatre at the last possible minute. It's very, very different to back home. But, yeah, they don't. Like you literally walk straight through the doors to your seat and then you leave at the end right up onto the street. So, um, yeah, so they they are very small, intimate places, but, again, just steeped in so much history there's a wonderful tradition that they have here in America. Um, I'm trying to remember if we did it in London. We might have done it too, with, which is the ghost light. And every every theatre, um, once it goes dark, once everyone's left, we'll have a light bulb and a, on a stand, a light in the centre of the stage um, that is on all night while we're all away, and it's called the ghost light. Um, and it's the idea, some would say it's the idea of keeping the ghost company. Some would say it's the idea of keeping them away. Uh, you know, I think I'm sure there's a, there's an amazing historical story that I am, I am forgetting right now about, about the tradition of it, but I love that that's a tradition, you know, and it's regional, like, as I said, regional houses everywhere, every theater will have a ghost light on the stage. Well, I remember during COVID when theatres shut down, the ghost light was certainly an image that a lot of people had on their social media and would... would keep pushing just to yep. to ensure that that people return to to theaters. Yeah. Um being part of Hades Town must also be a win for girl power. Um it's the first time uh, in over a decade that a woman has been the solo author of a musical writing the music lyrics and book and it's the fourth time in Broadway history that a woman has accomplished this creative feat. It also marks the first time in Broadway history that a show's female composer and female director both won Tony awards for their work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. Um, and, you know, I, I I was so fortunate in my final audition to have Rachel in the room and I've auditioned for her. I auditioned for the sh- for her shows. I auditioned twice for The Great Comet of Pierre, Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet of 1812, which um, were, I loved that show and actually was working merchandise on, <laughs> which is a whole other story. Um, and then as, yeah, this was the second, the second audition, um, for Hades Town. Then I finally booked it and Anais came in and saw the show there. She's just kind, both of them kind, supportive, wonderful women. And yeah, to, to, to see the mark that, that women are having and, and women led productions, um, are, it's really, it's really exciting and it's really great. And I, I, I'm so thrilled that I I get to to do the, a show like this and get to do one of Rachel's shows because I just I love her vision and I I love um and, and, sorry Natasha Pierre was such a wonderful wonderful show um and I I loved being able one of the joys of working merch is you get to watch shows for free well you get paid to watch shows and um 
yeah, just what they did with the staging, what they did with the, um, there were actor musicians in that as well. It was just a glorious, glorious show. And this one I had actually seen before, um, I, I went and saw it before I rejoined Come From Away after the pandemic. And I just wept at the staging of it and the simplicity and the raw gut punch emotion of it. Um, and this score is just so, so rich and wonderful and vibrant and smoky. And, um, and then just the vocals on that stage. It, it's, yeah, I, I, am I am inspired every day, every day. Do you have a, a routine, Amelia, when you arrive at the theatre? Uh, yes. So I am a bit of an early bird. Um, I like the I like getting there early. I usually will give because I, I I like to get there early so I can sit, which is weird. As some people, it's also here in America we don't have an hour call; we have a half hour call, and there's no oh. company warm up, um, which I found very strange. And still to this day, uh, it's very different being on stage with people you haven't seen in the building yet. Uh, so, but I will get there an hour, yeah, an hour and 15 minutes before the show. Um, I have a little travel kettle. I'll boil my water, make my throat coat tea with some honey. Um, and then I will kind of slowly, I'll put on a podcast and slowly start to get ready. And then the other girls in the dressing room will come in and we, yeah. So, um, here in America as well, they do particular week times. If you are wearing a wig in a show, the, it's all timed out to very specific times. But we're very fortunate with this as the fates. We wear these kind of turban hats that we don't, um, that I don't have to wear a wig, which is great, which means I just get to take my time and, you know, perch it, you know, get ready when I'm ready, which is which is really nice and not always the case. Um, so... They're kind of my rituals. I usually now, because we don't have a company warm-up, I will do my warm-ups at home before I leave. And because I'm kind of, I'm fate one, so I'm singing in the in the rafters a little bit. And it's all very high, nasty, pingy. So, and I'm still, I also, I usually say it takes me about six weeks to really sing a, a role into my voice. And so I'm still finding what's my eight shows a week standard you know what what where do I need to be in order to make sure that I deliver the same show eight times a week so it always takes a little while to because of course I am me and I will give you everything I have but that's not maintainable eight shows a week so um you know just finding those those little things um, I get to New York uh, a bit to to have my Broadway fix and I guarantee that at every show I attend there's a standing ovation. Now, of oh, course, yeah. the, the audience are wanting to applaud what they have just seen. But um, from your perspective, um, has that become a, an expectation of Broadway audiences, a, a, a ritual, or are they just standing up because they have to stretch their legs because the, the, the <laughs> these seats are so small? I think American audiences are very effusive. I think they just love it. They're so happy to be there. There are some things that I've been to that I went, well, that absolutely did not deserve a standing ovation. So I won't give one. I'm very Australian about it. It's like, did it earn it? Yes. If it did, then I'm on my feet. If not, then I'm not. But they also, the other thing to remember is the majority of Broadway audiences are actually tourists. So they're people that, that have come from outside of New York who are just thrilled to, to be there. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people don't necessarily realise um, is that, 
and, and one of the things that made the pandemic so hard and the uncertainty around it is because it's the people from out of town that come that spend the big bucks that, you know, stay at the hotels, that eat at the restaurants, you know. So, yeah, they they definitely love a standing ovation here. I I I like for a piece to earn it a little more personally, but also it's wonderful to be on that stage and and you get that every night. And I I definitely think this show earns it 100%. I I mean the perfor- the performance is the story, the orchestra, like all of it. It absolutely deserves it. Um but there's definitely been certain things that I were kind of like no, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Are you enjoying the stage door culture? Because um, audiences also love to flock at stage door, don't they? And, uh, they do. and greet, greet the actors as they leave. It's really hard post-COVID. It's really hard because we're not actually allowed to. I mean, some some theatres have relaxed their policies on it. I still tend to be very cautious because theatre is on such a knife's edge at any moment. Um, here in America, if, if, I, if someone tests positive, they're out of the building for 10 days, which then takes coverage from, you know, if someone else, if something else happens. So I still am being very, very cautious. I'm on the subway, I'm wearing a mask. I, I try not to eat indoors if I can avoid it. Um, and unfortunately, that means when we look out and a lot of people are unmasked in a theatre, I just can't be you know, um, being up close with the public as much as I would normally love to. And here in America, the, one of the bigger tra- tragedies is that here it's very commonplace to pre-COVID to give backstage tours. Like if I was in, say, when I was on the road with Flame Ears, um, if someone had, someone had a friend, I said, oh, I, you know, I have a friend who's, in, who's at the show and I would always very happily give them a backstage tour because, it's such a, an amazing thing. And in Australia, it's very, or pre, even pre-COVID, it was a very, you know, you had to ask and get special permission and all that. So I was always very happy to do it. And it, it, is, it is hard because you can see, especially these throngs of kids who've come all this way and they just want to say hi. And it's, you know, it, I, I still just feel a little bit cautious about that. But pre-COVID, absolutely, I loved it. When I when I had toured before and it happened, um, uh, so yeah, it's it's finding that balance between. And I, I will say though, if anyone anyone reaches out to me on social media, I'm absolutely always happy to you know to respond and interact. And I think that's become the way that I feel the most comfortable interacting. Um, but I know for a lot of my friends who grew up here and coming to Broadway shows and coming to regional shows, they love, they still have their signed program from when they went to see shows when they were kids. And I spoke to a friend's girlfriend who's also herself a performer and she talked to, she lived, grew up in New Jersey and she would ride the bus in and she saw rent like over up, upwards of maybe 50 times as a teenager and she knew the cast and she had things signed and they had a little club of people that would see the show and what's been really fun over this weekend though with Halloween is is we've had people dressed as characters from the show in the front rows and that's been really really fun really <laughs> fun well Amelia let's rewind back to Amelia as a little girl yeah when, when did uh, your fascination and passion for musical theatre start Ah, uh, it look, I loved music e- everything. I was so fortunate to grow up with um 
a mother and father for whom music was was paramount. My mum played piano, my dad played trumpet, um, both of them not at, at a professional level, but my mum taught dabbled and kind of taught piano a little bit. But mum would would sit us by those days, a record player, um, would sit us by the record player and she would make up her own stories to great classical works. So, for example, Beethoven's Ninth was the story of the Wizard on the Mountain. Um, Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor was the Lion and the Kangaroo. Um, and, and so storytelling was all. We would go to opera and symphony in the park every year. And then from the age of five, my parents would have Sydney Symphony subscriptions and I was taken to the symphony from the age of five at the opera house. Um, and so... But my dad had always, and both of them had always loved musicals. Um, my mum, I think, even became friends. Speaking of stage door moments, I think she became friends with one of the, the cast members of Chorus Line. She and my aunt went to see it a number of times. And um, But my dad grew up with Rodgers and Hammerstein, and he would often, um, he would sing that, um, My Little Girl, Pink and White from Carousel. Um, and then I think my first musical was 42nd Street at Her Majesty's Theatre when I was nine years old and my mum took me and a bunch of my friends to go and see that and I I remember just kind of loving it but it was interesting I, I just kind of loved all of it I loved all of it um and what is amazing is that theatre would go on to be my professional theatre debut because it's where I did Joseph when I was 13 so Again, these these cyclical moments. I'm just actually, as I tell the story, I'm like, oh my gosh, this has happened a number of times in my life. <laughs> um, but then, um, when I was in high, cut to high school, I was I would do everything because I played violin and piano, so I would have piano lessons. I would play in the orchestra. I would sing in the choir. I would do the plays. I would do the music. I kind of I used to call myself a stage addict um, because if it was involved a stage, I just wanted to do it. Um, and what, when I did my final exams from AHSC, uh, and I, my, my beautiful singing teacher, Kristen Cornwall, who had trained me classically and then went, here's some jazz, here's some music theatre. And I remember going to her and saying, what do I do? Do I be a jazz singer, an opera singer, or a music theatre singer? Because I loved all of them. And to her credit, she said, well, I don't know. You've got to work that out for yourself. And so then I went to Sydney University and... I ended up doing musicals with, with Suds, the Drama Society, um, with a bunch of other very well-known now fantastic people. Um, and then I was in the Renaissance Players, which was a medieval music group. And then I was also in a pub band doing jazz and blues. <laughs> um, and it was through that my time at university before I went to WAPA that I figured out, oh, I really like belting. And at that time, I, I liked going out to the pub a little too much. I was like, well, I don't think I can be an opera singer. Um, and uh, so that's how I, I kind of fell on music theatre and then I auditioned for WAPA and got in on my first go and the rest is history. But I think for me what I love about music theatre is really fun intense singing but it's this it's the storytelling I am I actually say to people as a singer I'm actually an actor first because it's all about the story um and when I discovered Sondheim as a teenager my world completely changed I think that's when the germ of the New York idea really that because I I had loved Andrew Lloyd Webber and um Les Mis and you know Rodgers and Hammerstein, I enjoyed it. Didn't move me as much. And then 
and then I found Sondheim and I went, oh, this is, this is, this is what I like. <laughs> Your music education sounds like then that it was informed by many uh, eclectic styles, um, mm -hmm. which also must come in handy for, for musical theatre because um, a lot of musicals are told in different styles, whether it be, be mm -hmm. rock opera or, or legitimate singing uh, as per Rodgers and Hammerstein or... Yeah. Or uh, the 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 the, uh, the pop singing that you did in Priscilla. Yeah, yeah. I've had such a, a such, when you look at what I've done here in America alone, it's this very mixed bag. You know, I went from Kinky Boots to Les Mis to Come From Away to Hades Town, uh, and with some regional work in between that I, you know, I've done a number of different styles. I have yet to do a really legit what they what we call legit musical, like a, I've never done a Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, uh, but I do tend to, to, to work more in a contemporary setting. Um, but yeah, it definitely, definitely comes in handy. And that's why I credit Kristen as that first singing teacher. I am a firm believer in if you, because I, I, I sometimes when I was actually, when you and I met Peter back in uh, at McDonald College, when I was teaching there, um, I sometimes think young voices get pigeonholed way too early. And so with the classical kids, I would give them more contemporary repertoire. And then with the, the, the contemporary kids, I would actually give them classical repertoire because I think if, if and obviously certain voices are suited to certain things and, and that will make itself clear, but there, there is such merit to all the different, you learn different things from different techniques and I think that has what has stood me in such good stead was that I was never told what to sing so I just went well I'll just do all of it um and I think that was the beauty of growing up with the the many diverse different styles I think also I've always been a mimic as a kid and so I would just impersonate who I heard and I think a lot of that's that's also um, where a lot of that comes in. You know that I grew up listening to people like Bette Midler and Barbara Streisand, and and even like Melissa Etheridge, and hearing all these different vocal techniques and just having a go. <laughs> um, yeah. The um, the American uh, performing. Um folk uh have regional touring uh and national yeah. tours available to them uh that that's a big thing over there which obviously we don't have in australia because of the the size of the country but uh it obviously helps to have a few regional credits on your cv uh before breaking into broadway yeah um you know people often think that off broadway is the next best thing to broadway but it's actually in fact the tours um you know and to be on a first national tour like I was for the first year of Kinky Boots um, and uh, and Come From Away was a first national tour. Even Les Mis, even though obviously it wasn't the first touring production of Les Mis, but this production, it was the first national tour for this particular production. Um, and it they are very, very highly regarded. Um, and, you know, when I, when I would say to people back in New York that I've done three tours, they'd be like, oh, wow, you know. Um, because that's how a lot of people will experience Broadway shows, is that especially if you live in the middle, you're seeing the touring production. And the, they are, you know, some of the productions have been pared down to, to accommodate 
uh, better ease of travel because, you know, there, there are certain things that you just can't travel, um, especially if you have um, automation elements. Um, but no, the reg regional work, and it's um, what I say to a lot of people who move, move here is like you want to get those regional credits because you want to show the casting directors that you can work here. And that's the thing. The more of those regional credits that you um, acquire, the more hireable you are, the closer it gets you to that end goal. Um, and especially as immigrants, um, being able to see that you can work in an, in an American um, environment is really crucial to whether you're going to be hireable further on. Um, and, yeah, it's... It's also a really good place to try out things and try. And there are certain roles that I would never play in in New York. So, for example, there's a beautiful theatre company out in Montana that I've worked with a number of times. In fact, they gave me my first job um, called Alpine Theatre Project. And they I got to play Regina in Rock of Ages, which is a role that I would never play here in New York because you, she doubles as one of the, the, the pole dancers. Um, and while I'd love to have a go on a pole, uh, it's not <laughs> a, a strong suit of mine. Uh, and so, you know, I, and I got to do Vicky in that, that same season. I got to do Vicky in Full Monty as well. We did them in, in rep, um, which means you do one show one night, another show another night. And then we also had Man of La Mancha that was on a third night and they'd alternate, which is an, a, an amazing experience challenging but amazing um and so yeah that's why and it's it's great to especially for me now at this point in my career here in America I also would ring them in Montana whenever I didn't have a job and say hey what are you doing over the summer or what are you doing in the Christmas concert it's great and then you get a little paycheck for you know and there's shorter runs as well so it's really great say if you don't have any work in the summer you can go to one of these regional theaters and they have these amazing summer programs and you'll go and stay out there for the summer um a gun quit up in maine is is a very very um there's a number of very very respected um very prestigious regional houses um because america's i always i say explain it to americans because they always like ask me you know how does touring work in how does the theater industry work in australia um, and, you know, we don't, we have a big expanse in the middle, but there aren't many people in the middle, whereas America is very heavily populated all across. I mean, certain deserts and mountains and things to varying degrees, but most towns have a, a regional theatre um, and that, that's how you're able to sustain a show touring for two, three, four, multiple years. You know, things like Wicked, Hamilton, Lion King have multiple companies touring at the same time so yeah it's very different it must be exciting seeing a whole range of of houses as well um yeah. around the country yeah and you tend to play bigger houses on tour because your broadway houses are surprisingly much smaller than people think um i don't know what the capacity of the walter kerr is i think it's 11 it, it, but it feels like it's in around the 1100 mark um, I think the capital in Sydney is what two thousand mm. or something mm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the the houses that you play on tour would be some of these big, some not so big, depending on the size of the town. Um, some were more intimate than others, but a lot, the majority of the houses that we play on tour would be much bigger. Um, so that's also a very interesting experience, especially with a show like Come From Away, which is so intimate, to be playing this 
huge, expansive, cavernous space and try and make the storytelling as intimate and personal as if you were an 1,100-seat theatre. It requires, that is a skill in itself as well to adapt your performance to the, to the house that you've got. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm very grateful for my touring experience. Do you enjoy the touring life? Touring is fantastic. If you are a single person without a rent check to pay, it's great. Um, I did enjoy it. My first tour was Kinky Boots and I absolutely loved it. I got paid to see the country. I, there were towns that I went to that I did not realise that I would never have chosen to go on vacation, for example. Like Memphis is not necessarily a town that I would have chosen to go. It's one of my favourite American cities now. Seattle is another city that I heard a lot about but was like, oh, I don't really need to go to Seattle, but absolutely fell in love with it. Um, so, in, and it's a really great way. I think I've been to 45 of the 50 now, wow. 44 um, in the three tours that I've done. Um, so, yeah, it's so for, for some, when I first moved to the States, it was, it was fantastic. I loved it. I had such a brilliant experience. Um, the second two were a bit rougher because I'd, by that stage I'd met my now husband. And, um, so Les Mis, I think I booked Les Mis months into us dating. And so that was a little bit tougher. Um, and then we've come from away. We actually got married while I was on tour. We had booked our wedding um, for the year while I was on tour. So I uh, went off and got married two months, I think, after joining the tour. Um, so... Um, but I will say what made Come From Away, I think, much more, a much more um, pleasant experience touring was I actually drove the tour. I have our car. And so I would drive myself from city to city. And that made a huge, huge difference, um, you know, being in charge of my own travel. Because it's rough. I mean, you're, you're changing cities every week. You're living in hotel rooms. But there are certain things that you can do to A, save money and B, make it a much more livable experience and that's that was the benefit of having done a tour already was it was like oh okay now I know how to do it smartly um and but you know I mean my little car got me through mountains and desert and and um swamps and all sorts and we had we had a lot of adventures together um so yeah now I have to ask you a question about Priscilla um, yes. You know, actors are put into all sorts of positions and required to do all sorts of things. Uh, yeah. What was it like uh, being strung up as one of the divas? Because <laughs> your entrance would be from the flies. Um, you're obviously not scared of heights. I wasn't then. Uh, now, <laughs> I like to say that I have a healthy respect for heights now. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, again, you know, talk about uh, dreams to, to descend from the ceiling singing the opening notes of what would go on to be probably the most successful or most famous Australian musical of all time. Um, I think between Boy From Oz and uh, I don't know which, which you would say, but, you know, um, it, was, it was incredible. I eventually would get so comfortable up there because I was the first one up because um, I was in the middle the most often. I would have little naps up there and be hanging and having little little sleeps because we'd be up there for, you know, 10 to 15, 10 to 15 minutes, maybe not so long. Um, but it was amazing. I always, I always used to say, though, it would give me an incredible bird's eye view because audiences don't understand. We can see you. 
especially when you're, you know, at what we say, I'm trying to, now I've been here so long, I'm converting what 30, 30 feet, 10 meters, 10, 15 meters up in the air. You can see everything. And so I would, um, but I would, I would always spot the cameras back in the days so it was digital cameras and they'd have a little light. I would spot them. And, um, but yeah, you can absolutely see everything, but it was, it was glorious. Um, yeah, uh, I I am so grateful. That show, I would not be here in America without that show. That show, sorry, it's like a little lump in my throat again. Um, that that show gave me the put me on the path truly. Um, and yeah, it was fun. I, I I liked I liked buying. I enjoyed it. Um, although when I got to the, doing it in the UK, it was a completely different system of getting us up there, which was. I would probably say a little, a little more scary because we would walk out from this platform and we would, they would slot us out one by one horizontally. And that was a little more, whereas with the original production, we would just come up from the floor, which I liked a little more. I think it felt, it felt a little bit safer. The great musical, A Chorus Line, uh, features yeah. the song What I Did for Love. Now, uh, it's, it's yeah. been performed many times and, and, and people often sing it as, as a love song to, to another person. But, of course, it's a song about the sacrifices that an artist makes in pursuing their art. You know, so some of the lyrics, the gift was ours to borrow, point me toward tomorrow. We did what we had to do, won't forget, can't regret what I did for love. Um, ambition, determination, belief, hunger, never losing sight of the end goal. That's exactly what you've done, Amelia Cormack. Oh, you'll make me, I'm feeling a little, as they say, I'm a little verklempt today, a little emotional today. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it. I guess. Have you missed Have you missed out on much? I guess by by having that end goal in sight. Uh yeah, I've definitely missed time with my family, um, and you know, having the closeness with my nieces and nephews that I grew up with my cousins, and we were spending time with each other all the time. Um, that's been that's been really hard. You know, I have two nieces, my sister, my mum, most of my family still live in Australia. I'm very fortunate. I have a brother in Rhode Island, which is about three and a half hours away. So I, I get to see them a little more regularly, which makes it a lot easier. But it, it is hard. I'm just so lucky and grateful to have family that support support me and support what I'm doing. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why having both of my parents, my dad was opening night and my mum came later to see Hades Town and, and kind of be able to go, see, this is this is why I went through all of that. This is why I did it. And you could see them going, we understand, we see it. And I will say, at the, I think also what I've, I've, I think I've come at a really good time for um, female identifying people of my age um and and older because the role when I remember when I turned 30 in 2010 and part of the reason I left was just because there wasn't anything really at that time there were no roles for women that were over 30 and I just was like I know I can do more than this I know I I have more to give and if and I you know I have this dream of Broadway and if I don't go now it won't happen um and so it 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 was coming back to circling back to what we we're talking about before. It was a big risk, but I just went. If I don't go now, I'll never know. And I think, you know, that was that was the big push. It was like it may work, it may not. I may not be good enough, but at least I gave it a try. And I think I would rather live with having tried than the regret of not 
of never having tried. And, you know, I, if, if I can, I mean, it's interesting you bring up that song and that show because that show was such a, I've always, I always joke that there are certain roles in alternate universes where I am like a, a very fierce dancer that can kick my face. I would give anything to be in that show and sing that song. But that is why we do it is because we love it. And it's when I look out into the audience every night and I see the shining faces looking up and especially a show like this that is, you know, has really touched I think a lot of younger people in particular, like it's just such a beautiful story and the music is is so wonderful um, that are having the same experience I did when I sat in that chair and watched that show. And just because I'm older than them doesn't mean that it's it was a different, I still was feeling that magic and and it's it's so incredibly special. Um, and I and I and I think it is this that thing it's it's amazing to be telling a greek myth which is thousands and thousands of years old and we are channeling something that is as ancient and an art form that is as ancient as, as this store as the story is people coming to see this story now the same people had the experience sitting in the theater thousands of years ago and at the end of the show we we sing um i raise my cup which is an offering to Orpheus wherever he is in the world and it there's something that just feels so ancient and timeless about that um and that it's the same experience thousands of years later the the trappings may have changed but it's the same thing and that's why we do it to commune with something that is bigger and better in human nature than us I don't know that's very very hippy dip very spiritual hippy dippy but uh, yeah <laughs> No, it's a lovely, lovely way to finish uh, this conversation, Amelia. Um, we can see you at the Walter Kerr Theatre in New York City. Hades Town is currently booking through till May next year. So um, looks like you're in for a, a great ride. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, it's wonderful seeing you achieve your your dreams, Amelia. Um, more strength to you and continued triumph. Thank and you. and and thank you for joining us on stages and and having this conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. So good to see you. And um, if people want to get in touch on social media, I'm just at Amelia Cormack and I'm happy to, I always love chatting with people. So come find me, have a chat. And indeed, if you're in New York City, please go along and see Hades Town. Thanks, Amelia. Thank you. Following two intertwining love stories, that of young dreamers Orpheus and Eurydice, and that of King Hades and his wife Persephone, Hades Town invites audiences on a hell-raising journey to the underworld and back. Hades Town marks the first time in over a decade that a woman has been the solo author of a musical, writing the music, lyrics and book, and is the fourth time in Broadway history a woman has accomplished this creative feat.
It also marks the first time in Broadway history that a show's female composer and female director both won Tony Awards for their work. Tickets for Hadestown at the Walter Kerr Theatre are available through to Sunday, May 28, 2023. If you happen to be in New York, embrace the delights of Broadway, especially Hadestown, and say hello to Amelia. Thanks for joining us in this episode. It is always a joy to have your company. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages. Stages.